brothers and sisters, the word of the true and the living God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him, and let Him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400 All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask again for your help in opening your word in a way that profits your people and honors your name. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. It's fitting to me to start this series in the month of October. The month of October, we typically, as as Reformed Christians, celebrate the Reformation. We celebrate men like Martin Luther and his followers. We celebrate men like John Calvin, John Knox. And all the way up until present day, there have been Reformers in every age. Men who have sought to see the church grow and improve and cast off ignorance, cast off idolatry, cast off sin and grow in, in, in love for, for God and, and, and the church. And so we love the Reformation. We honor the, the, the history of the Reformation. And, and particularly, I think it's important for us who love these historical truths to, to not become man-centered in our love for the Reformation. So that we don't forget that it's God who stirred up the hearts of these men. It's God who stirred up the hearts of men to do what they did, to count the cost, to suffer, and to do what was right, even though it cost them much, even their own very lives in some cases. 
It's important that we not become man-centered, but we remember that it's God who grows His church. It's God who restores His church when she's unfaithful. It's God who renews her church when she grows dead and cold. And so we need to remember this. And this is a wonderful text to, to bring that very point out. God stirs up the heart of His people. God is the author, the orchestrator, the one who is behind the scenes planning for good. Everything that happens. And it all works together for the good of His people, for His church. So we're going to see that here in this text. And God wants to restore His church in every age. He wants to grow us in every age. He wants us to keep pressing on to more faithfulness in every age. God loves reformation. It honors Him. But it's also, it's also quite often hard. So we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a book about reformation. And I say one book because Ezra and Nehemiah has traditionally been understood as to be one complete, cohesive whole. And we'll talk about that some more. But the author of Ezra and Nehemiah are all, quite obviously, Ezra and Nehemiah. These men are the authors of this book. And before we begin, it's good for us to get a little historical background because the, the, the theological truths that we're going to learn in Ezra and Nehemiah are rooted, just as the rest of the Bible is, in history. Rooted in historical events. And it's good for us to know some of the history behind these events. So, uh, we begin, I think, first of all, in, in about 605 B.C., in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And in that year, he came to power. And in that year, he began to deport, already began to de- deport Jews from, from Judah, from Judea, to deport them to other lands, including Babylon. 605 B.C. In 587 B.C., Jerusalem was completely conquered and taken over by Babylon. 587 B.C. was a very, very important year for the Jews because that was the year that they saw their precious temple raised to the ground. They saw the complete takeover of their nation and we saw many, many more Jews uh, taken away and, and taken off into exile in Babylon and many other nations scattered about wherever the king wanted to bring them. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 25. So those are two very important dates. I want you to remember, 605, the Jews began to become deported, taken out. 587, Jerusalem raised. And then more and more people were taken away at that time as well. Seventy years from those two events, we have two more very important dates. In 539 B.C., Babylon was defeated. Babylon as a nation, they were the world's superpower. 589 B.C., another king rose up. Another king took control. His name? Cyrus. We read about him right here. Cyrus is mentioned here. He defeated Babylon 70 years after the exile. Then, in 538 B.C., which is where we are now in this text, 538 B.C., 538 years before Christ came, we had the very first return from exile of the Jews. The Jews began to filter back and come back Uh, in smaller amounts, but they began to come back from exile, back to their homeland in Jerusalem after seven decades, after seven decades away. A whole generation of people. Later. Another date that's very important is 516 B.C. That's 70 years after the temple was raised. That was in 587 B.C. In 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. We're going to read about that as well. We're going to see that that historical event 
uh, where, how that took place and what was the significance of that. 516 BC, the temple was rebuilt. So, I want you to note here that there has been one return so far since we saw all those things happen in, in, in Jerusalem. The first the return was in 538 B.C. There's another return that's recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The second return is in 458 B.C. And this was, this was led by Ezra himself. The first return was Zerubbabel. We see his name here. The, se- the second return in 458 was by Ezra. And he returned to Jerusalem with a very important task. The first return was to begin the rebuilding process of the temple. The second return by Ezra was to begin to restore the law of God to the people of God. And there was a third return. And the third return took place in 445 B.C. under Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a particular role to play. And his role was to rebuild the actual physical walls of the city to protect the city from outside attacks, outside influence. So we have three returns recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Three returns that span several decades. All of them have a function and all of them have a purpose. They're all used by God to restore and reform the Jewish people. We see the temple, we see the law, and we see the city. All three of those things are going to be reformed, restored, rebuilt, and, and returned to use in, in Jerusalem. This is a lot of detail, but that's the main idea I want you to get away from this, is there these, these returns from exile. That has a theological significance, because Ezra and Nehemiah, in many ways, is describing for us a kind of exodus. Or you might say three different exoduses. An exodus out of bondage, out of exile, back home to where God wanted them to be. So again, we see those three uh, returns as three, basically three exoduses of God. This is something that the church has seen for many, many years. There's an echo of the exodus with Moses. And one other theological thing that I think is helpful at the outset... And you see this reflected in our text. Seven times you see the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this is not by accident. This repetition signifies the emphasis here, is that God has a love for Jerusalem. God has a love in this Old Testament context for this great city, this ancient city. Why? Because this was the city in which God called for His house to be built. The Old Testament... Uh, house of God was built there and it was the place where God's glory dwelt. It was the center of worship. And it was a, a very important city uh, for those spiritual reasons. So God loves this city. The word Jerusalem means itself. Foundation of peace. That is true in the very most, uh, the most profound sense in the world. Because it was there from the temple that the gospel goes forth. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, the blood sacrifices, the Passover... From Jerusalem comes the gospel. It is indeed, literally, the foundation of peace to the world for the Old Testament. God loves Jerusalem and God wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt. Why is this relevant for us? Because Jerusalem becomes an idea. An idea that has not gone away. We are Jerusalem. The Bible repeatedly shows us that the the church, the New Testament church, is 
is, is, is described in terms of Jerusalem. For example, Hebrews 12.22 tells us that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem when we gather together to worship. Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 describes the glorified church as the new Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem. And God has a vested interest in seeing the reformation of Jerusalem. So, while we are going to be understanding and looking at the historical facts of history here, the, the, the things that actually happen, I want you to see there's a theology behind them in which God is typologically showing us that He is interested in continuing the Reformation in His church in Jerusalem today. So typology plays a very big role in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the main idea that we're going to see that's a lot of info, and I, and I grant you that. Thank you for your patience. Uh, but the main idea that we're going to see tonight as we get into the text here is that God not only redeems His church, but, but when she declines, when she, when she becomes um, low, God stirs up His church to reformation. When the church declines, God stirs up His church to reformation. That's the main idea we're going to see tonight. So, as we look at this, the first uh, point, first of two points we're going to see um, deals with the, uh, the, uh, ref- the restoration of this city. First of all, we're going to see the prophecy. The prophecy of the temple's restoration. And then the second thing we're going to see tonight is the provision. The provision for the temple's restoration. So let's look at the prophecy first of all. First three verses, so keep your Bibles open, please, and, and look with me. There is a prophecy that is being fulfilled right here at this time. In around 537, 538 B.C., um, we see it here. Again, we even have a time marker, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Again, 538, 539, something like that. First year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. So, first thing Ezra wants us to know is he wants us to know this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we need to... We need to get the backstory of this prophecy. It's very, very, very interesting and very important. And we're going to look at three places. Leviticus. We're going to look at Jeremiah and Isaiah. And I'm going to go through this very quickly. So just catch the high points. Leviticus. There's a prophecy in Leviticus 26. It's a warning. Israel, if you do not rest on my Sabbaths, if you will not keep my Sabbaths, he warns Israel, Yahweh will force the land to rest through exile. All the way back. In the Mosaic, Mosaic times, God warned His people about this. You don't keep my Sabbaths, you're going to exile. You won't rest, I'll make you rest. We shouldn't think this has gone away either. God loves His Lord's day. Fast forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 25, a promise to Judah that he will exile them for their unfaithfulness. And then 70 years later, he is going to persecute their persecutors. Go back and read that later, Jeremiah 25. He promises Judah, you will go to exile, and then I'll punish your oppressors. Jeremiah 29, God promises to do good and not to evil to His people. He says, this is all going to take place. You've been unfaithful to me, but God is going to be good to you. 
And he will restore Israel after the 70 years of exile. So God already told him in advance, you're going to go to exile and I'm going to restore you back to your proper place. It's a discipline to his people for breaking the Sabbath day. Prophecy in Leviticus, prophecy in Jeremiah, and there's prophecy in Isaiah as well. Now, it's not mentioned by Ezra, but it's helpful to see it. Isaiah 41, verse 2. God said that He stirred up... Now, this is past tense language, but it's future for Isaiah. Roughly 300 years future, by the way. This is fascinating. Isaiah's prophesying this to Israel. Isaiah 41. God stirred up a successful king from the east who tramples kings underfoot. So here's a king that tramples other kings. He goes on in Isaiah 44 to name him. Israel has not been forgotten. When Israel is, is, is punished or disciplined, Israel will not be forgotten. He will send a shepherd. His name? Cyrus. He will send the shepherd Cyrus to build the temple. Again, 300 years before this happened. Isaiah 45, quote, Cyrus, the Lord's anointed. That's the word Messiah. Cyrus, the Lord's Messiah. Fascinating language. God's chosen servant. God's divine instrument is named in Isaiah 45 verse 1. And then in Isaiah 45 verse 13, he says, This Cyrus, who he names by name 300 years before the fact, Cyrus will build my city and he will set my exiles free. The people of God knew the name of their liberator 300 years before he arrived on the scene. Or less than that, but 300 years before the temple was restored through Cyrus. So the prophecy is fulfilled through this man Cyrus, a non-believing agent with his own ulterior motives. Cyrus reigned from 539 to 530 B.C., He had originally been a Persian vassal king under Nebuchadnezzar, so he paid homage to Nebuchadnezzar, he paid tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, until one day he got tired of Nebuchadnezzar, and he rose up in a stunning victory, and he took over. And so he became the world's king, in a way. He became sort of the the reigning emperor over the nations. He was not a believer. His proclamation that we have written here is, is common language. He wrote proclamations like this to other nations. He sent peoples back to their homes and encouraged them to worship their gods. This was entirely just simply good PR. It was just, it was just good policy. It kept his people happy. It enabled them liberty. Uh, maybe our, our leaders could learn something from him. It enabled them liberty so that they were happy and content and they would be happy to continue to pay tribute uh, to him and, and be peaceable. So Cyrus here makes this proclamation simply as a good policy of religious toleration for happy subjects. We know from other writings he was completely dedicated to the god Marduk, whoever he was. That was was his god. But he was happy to pay homage to Yahweh or pay homage to any other god so long as it made his subjects happy. And so him sending Israel back, or these Jews, back to Jerusalem to build their temple was very wise from a political standpoint. His motives were entirely political. There's no evidence that he was a sincere believer even though he speaks like one. So we need to not be confused by that. He was politically motivated. However, however, I want you to note the text here. Yahweh stirred him up. Yahweh stirred up the heart of Cyrus to do what he did. Yahweh is behind this, not Cyrus. Who gets the credit? Not Cyrus. 
Yahweh. Reformation is beginning for them. They have been 70 years in exile. Many of them very happy. The people weren't entirely all miserable. In fact, they got used to their subjugation. They got used to being away from the house of God. They got used to being away from the worship of God, from the ceremonial uh, gospel that was given them. They became used to their gods. They became used to their new subjugation. It's very sad, actually. So they were quite content to live in Babylon, many of them. Many of them didn't return. And yet God stirred up his heart, the heart of this man because he wanted his people to return, to reform, to become faithful again as a nation, as a church. So God stirred up his heart to do this thing. The word in the Hebrew is a word that means to incite or to arouse. He incited his heart. He provoked his heart. He, he aroused his heart to do this thing for Israel. And so we need to see that it was the Spirit of God that prompted this pagan king to send his people home. And so it's interesting. Cyrus thought Yahweh was a helpful tool to benefit him. He did not understand that he, in fact, was Yahweh's tool to benefit God's kingdom. So it's a very interesting kind of idea here. Verse 2. We see the beginning of his proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Everything he says here is true. But again, it's Yahweh who decrees these things. It's Yahweh who did indeed give him all the kingdoms in the world. And it's Yahweh who gave him um, all the authority to restore these people. Every single detail of our lives is authored and ordained by the sovereign God of the universe. He does it for our good. You might even say that the 70 years of exile, sovereignly ordained by God, but it was for the good of His people. He had good purposes for it. The invisible hand of God in everything, it worked for our good. Verse 3. He says, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Again, this is a political move, but it's very good news for Israel. Why? What significance, children, what significance does the temple have if you're an Old Testament Jew, if you're, a, if you're a Jew living in those days, what does that temple mean? Think about it. That temple was the heart, was the center of all their religious activities, of all their, the, their true religion, you might say. The heart of it was centered right there in Jerusalem. Why? Because around 587 B.C., when the temple was destroyed, worship as God had intended it ceased. Worship at the temple ceased. Israel was unable to have atonement through sacrifice. Israel was unable through that atonement to approach God and was unable to hear the gospel given to them that their sins are forgiven through the the offering of the sacrifice. So for them, effectively, worship and their true communion with Christ through those sacrifices ceased. And for Israel, that was devastating. Everything that a believer is and does centers on the gospel. And for them, this was a great hindrance, spiritual hindrance. So for God to say that the temple should be rebuilt 
and that this would be done soon would be a, a tremendous good news for the people of God. So I just want you to see here that the prophecy that was given all those many years prior in Leviticus, then in Jeremiah, then in Isaiah, even naming the name of this king, this pagan king, all of it's fulfilled here in the providence of God. And it ought to, we ought to just simply marvel at this, put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. The sovereign God does good for his people, despite our unfaithfulness. Now, I want you to see the second point. So we see the prophecy of this restoration, and then I want you to see the provision that is made for the temple's restoration. The provision is in verses 4 through 6. So if you look there with me, actually verses 4 through 11. The nature of the provision here is really two things. Nebuchadnezzar provides two things for, for this work. Number one, people. You can't have reformation without people. Number two, material gifts. Material assistance. Treasure. So look, look with me at these two things. Uh, verse 4, through, uh, verse four through, through 5, 4 and 5, we see the people. Um, it's helpful to read this again, I think. Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see a pattern here forming? What is God doing? He stirs up the heart of the people to do this work. Have you ever had a zeal for something? You ever had God, you felt like you had a uh, just a, an internal calling to do this thing. You felt like God has commissioned you to do this work. Or this project. Or reach this person. Or go to this place. Perhaps you have. God was doing that with His people here. Go home. Go rebuild my house. Go institute the altar again. Institute the gospel again. And reset and, and, and restore my true religion to the world. That you will be again a light on a hill to these nations. And so he stirs up his people. In fact, he says two things. He says God rose them up. Again, a really wonderful word there in the Hebrew. A word that can sometimes mean almost raised from the dead. He rose them up and stirred up their spirits to get back, to get back home. Now, Here's a question that occurred to me as I was thinking about this text. Why might the people need their hearts stirred up? You would think that's their homeland. Wouldn't they just be, you know, chomping at the bit to go home? God had to stir up their hearts. Like I said, many of them were enjoying the pleasures of Babylonia. Enjoying the pleasures of culture in that place. They were enjoying the comforts. 900 miles to Jerusalem for many of them. It would be hard work. It would be opposition. It would not be easy. And beside that, many of these were young people. The only, there were only a few of the old-timers left. The old-timers who had seen the, the first temple. And you see them later when the temple's built. You remember their response when they saw this other little temple they built. They were weeping with sadness, seeing, oh, it's pathetic. So there were not many left from that generation. Many of them were young. They had grown up in Babylonia. They had grown up in exile. 
So God had to stir up their hearts, perhaps through the stories of their fathers or their grandfathers, of going back to our homeland, going back to our our promised land, going back to the city of David, going back to the house of God, that we might see the true religion restored, the gospel restored to the world. And God had to stir up their hearts to face this massive challenge 900 miles away. And it's the the same way in history. God stirs up men like Luther knowing that he's going against all of Rome, all of the world, in fact. Athanasius, contramundum. You've ever heard this phrase? And Athanasius against the world. His friend said, Athanasius, the world is against you. Athanasius says, well, Athanasius, contramundum. Athanasius against the world then, if if that be so. He fought Arianism in his day when almost no one else would. And that's what a reformer does. He's been stirred up by God to stand against the tide, to swim against the stream, no matter the cost. Why? Because it's right. Even though it's scary and hard. So God stirs up these people to even suffer and sacrifice so that they would see the gospel go forth with power as before. And God gets the credit for it. So we see God providing through Cyrus people, and we see God providing through Cyrus material assistance. Verse 6. And all who were about them aided them. So all who were about them, that little phrase means all of their neighbors. The people that God stirred up to go home, all of their neighbors, aided them with vessels of silver and with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares. And besides all that, was all, and besides all that was freely offered. So notice what's happening here. Cyrus, in his proclamation, he is instructing the neighbors of these Jews to give them stuff. Cyrus the king tells them, you help them out. Give them goods. Give them assistance. You're going to have help from your neighbors. Haven't we seen something like this before? Haven't we seen this in history? Where have you seen that? Exodus. Remember that? Exodus chapter 12. Where God put it on the hearts of the Egyptians the neighbors of the captive Israelites, soon to be freed Israelites, he put it on the hearts of their neighbors to give them all manner of treasure. Gold, silver, fabrics, spices, whatever, beasts, even other Egyptians. So we've seen it before. Again, it points backward to the plundering of Egypt. And so what we see in Cyrus, this is, Cyrus is most likely oblivious to that history. But God isn't. Cyrus is doing what's expedient. But God is not only doing something good for his people, but he's doing something theological here for us as well because he's tying these two events together. God wants us to see the other layer, not just the historical layer, but the theological layer that's underneath. And that is, this is another exodus happening here. This is God setting his people free again. I didn't learn their lesson the first time, I guess, but so God's... People need to see it again. God brings them out again. This, again, points back to the plundering of Egypt and all of that treasure that they got in Egypt was used, of course, to build up the house of God. It was used to build up the tabernacle. You see that in Exodus 25. But this is theology. God gives gifts to His people. God equips His people with what they need so that God's people will be used to build up His house. God wants to build up a house for His name. God wants to build up a house for His dwelling in all the earth. 
And it's no different now. This is brought all the way home to the final exodus through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was himself the fulfillment of all of this theology. Himself bringing forth the final and necessary exodus for all of his people to be saved and for ultimately his great and final house to be built. And so we see this in the book of scriptures. If you can uh, stick with me for just a moment. In the book of Revelation, for example, we see God um, speaking of the binding of Satan. Uh, I won't go there for time's sake, but in in Revelation 20, we see uh, the, the scriptures talking about the binding of Satan for a thousand years. That began in the reign of, that began in the earthly ministry of Christ. And Christ came and he bound Satan for a thousand years. That's a symbolic spirit of time in which he began to plunder the nations. He began to plunder the house of the devil. He began to bring out all of his treasures out of the house of the kingdom, if you will, of Satan. And took them as his own trophy. We see this in Matthew 12. If you want to, I want you to see this. Turn there with me. So, so Revelation 20, it's, it's not hard if you, if, you, if you read it in light of Matthew 12. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 25 says this, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he says this, Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there Jesus is telling his disciples that he has come to bind the strong man and plunder his house. And the strong man is the devil. Jesus is plundering the devil right now by taking to himself the people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Everybody that that Satan thought he had under his thumb, Jesus is saying, nope, they're mine. And he's plucking them right out of the flames. He is tied up the devil so that he can't stop him. There's nothing that's going to stop him. His kingdom's going to press on. It's going to go forward like a steamroller. And he is going to eventually conquer every part of the earth. And he's going to have it all to himself. Eventually there will be no more evil, no more sin. And it's happening gradually, day by day. He's doing it. So right now, Christ is plundering his enemies. And we see all of that theology in the Exodus. And we see it here as well in Ezra and Nehemiah. So all these details factor into this big picture of salvation. And Christ is plundering the world. He's building His house. Ephesians chapter 2, we are the house of God. We are the temple, the new temple, made up of living stones, plugged in, that God is building throughout the the earth. So, God has not redeemed us for our own sake. God redeems us because He wants glory. This is about God's glory. God sovereignly rules and through Cyrus's. He so- sovereignly rules through the, the, the leaders and the princes of this age. And he does it all for the good of his church. I think this is helpful for us to think about now when we're looking at 
uh, leaders and governments and, and, and policies and all these things that are happening that sometimes trouble our souls. We need to remember that God and His sovereign hand is behind everything that is happening. And ultimately, it will be used for good. We don't need to fear. We need to trust Him. And this has happened repeatedly throughout history. So God is building His house, and He does it even through instruments that don't acknowledge His name. Through leaders who don't acknowledge His name, who, who don't even love Him, who hate Him. And God is going to get His way. Alright, the last part here is verses 7 through 11. And this is a, a, a sort of a strange addendum to this, to this text, and it fits quite well, but we need to understand how. So look with me, verses 7 through 11. To preface reading this, the amount of people that that returned to Jerusalem at this time in 538 was quite small compared to the number of exiles that there actually were. We don't have exact numbers, so I can't tell you exact numbers, but there were quite a few. But the amount of of, uh, people that actually came back were quite small. And if you look at Ezra chapter 2, you'll see there's an exact number attached to it. Initially, about 42,360 people came back. That's not including servants. Now, you would think that this would be a large number, but it wasn't. And so what would you say to, 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 to the Jewish people and say, well, how do you encourage them and say, you know, why is the number so small? How is God going to restore Israel with such a small number of people? Well, I think these, these last verses encourage, encourage uh, the people of Israel. Because there's a double meaning here. So look with me at verses 7 through, through 11. Cyrus does something else. He brings out the vessels of the temple. They are the uh, bowls. They are the, the pitchers. They are the, the various different utensils used in the, uh, in the house of the Lord. So look with me here at the text. Verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Jezbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. Verse 11. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So, why this here? It's a bit of a strange note to end on. Seemingly anticlimactic somewhat. But I think there's a, 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 there's a theological and symbolic significance to this. And if you can hang with me just for a moment, I want to try to explain what I think is happening here. Because the vessels here are important. They are essential even to the worship of God. For the worship of God to take place, they have to have these vessels. They actually carry out the practical duties of the priesthood with them. So they need to be there. All of them. And this is what, ne- what, what the king Cyrus gives back. He says, here you go. Here all, he, it's very kind of dramatic in effect. He has his treasure come out, count them all out in front of the Jews. They see each bowl made hundreds of years ago for the holy work of God in the temple. It would have been quite stunning if you're a Jew and seeing all this take place. 
counting them all out. Here's 1,000. Here are all 1,000 bowls for you. Counting them out for the people. So, I think what the, is, what the author is getting at is this. Just as the, the vessels were necessary for the worship of the house and they needed to be returned, the same principle was true for the people. So I think what's happening here is there is an analogy being made between the vessels of the house of the Lord and the people themselves. And this is the encouraging part. Just as every single vessel that was necessary for the house to be built was brought out, so too every single person will be brought out. The scriptures, interestingly, and make the New Testament, interestingly, makes the analogy between Christians and vessels in a house. And I think that's not by coincidence here. And I think we can see that parallel here. But 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. <clears throat> now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. There's one other, uh, and that's in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Beginning in verse 19. uh, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? So you see in those two passages, the New Testament is using this idea of vessels in a house um, for, for believers. And there are some who are vessels of wrath in, in the house as well. But here I think what's, what's being done is that there, there is an analogy being made to the church and to these vessels. And this is interesting. Just as those vessels were held captive and put in a dark place and not being used for 70 years, now they're being brought out and they're going to be put to the use that they were created for, just like those people. And so God is going to bring out all of His people He's going to set every single one of them free, just like these vessels. And they're going to be put to good and honorable use in His house. They're going to be put to use to worship and to be a witness to the nations, just like these vessels. Some are silver, some are gold, but all of them are Christ's. All of them are holy, and He's going to bring us all out. He's not going to leave one behind. And I think that's the key. And at the end, you see that emphasis, verse 11. All the vessels of gold were brought out. And so, brothers and sisters, this is our identity. You have been called to be a vessel for the house of the Lord. A holy vessel. You've been set apart for worship and you've been set apart for a witness. And Christ is going to use everything in your life, everything in our lives, everything that's happening around us in our society today. He's going to use it all for good to, to, to help us to be what we're called to be. So this is all good news. Um, even when there's a lot of bad things happening around us, this is all good news for us as God's people. And again, God's going to bring us all home one day. So we can be thankful for that. And so we can look forward to seeing the reformation of God's church throughout these two books. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these, uh, these words that we've looked at tonight, these ancient, um, these ancient texts, Lord, that are so, uh, so deep and so fascinating. And we thank you, Lord, that the, the message is quite simple, that you are stirring up your people in every age uh, to be reformers and to be reformed for your service, for your kingdom. So, Lord, we pray that you would begin in our own hearts, that you would help us to see those areas, Lord, where we are ineffective or out of use, where we have, become in, in, we have fallen into disuse or neglect of your word, of your, of your callings. Help us, Lord. Renew us, Lord. And we pray, give us your spirit and stir us up for more faithfulness. And we look forward, Lord, to you saving us and using us for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.